Hey, uh, last week we uh, learned that Jesus was creating quite a stir amongst the Jews during Passover week. Remember that? In chapter 2, creating quite a stir. And uh, actually, what he was doing was turning over the tables. He got rid of the money changers. And that just upset all sorts of people. And uh, you know, he cleared them all out. And according to verse 23, by the way, he continued to do some signs. Verse 23 says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, which was a week long, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So after he turned over the tables and got rid of the money changers, he started doing more miracles, okay, during that week. And now in our passage this morning, we are induced, introduced to a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, one of the rulers of Israel, of the Jews. And so last week in verses 23 through 25, I really believe it sets the scene for what's going on in chapter 3. That's why John has this injected in there. He's injected verses 23, 24, and 25, because out of that comes a man at night named Nicodemus, okay? And one who enters into dialogue with Jesus. In other words, after John writes in verse 23 that Jesus performed many miracles, he adds that they observed him and many people believed. But notice what 24 and 25 says. Thank you. Jesus' response to their, I'm going to put it in brackets, their belief. Okay? Notice this. But Jesus on his part, uh uh-oh, okay? You, You look at 23 all by itself, and everything looks really good. Wait a minute. He's doing miracles and signs, and they're believing. Sounds great, doesn't it? Woo! This is What an evangelistic service going on. This is fantastic. But notice 24 and 25 take us a different direction altogether. But, contrast, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, them being the ones that John says many believed. Now, why? For he knew all men. He knew what was in man. Look at verse 25. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man. Why is that? He's God. He knows us infinitely better than we could ever know ourselves, being omniscient. This is the deity of Christ a little bit coming out. For this reason, verse 25, the last phrase, he himself knew what was in man. He knew something about man that prevented him from committing himself to them. Think about it for a minute. He knew their hearts. He knew their spiritual condition. He knew their selfishness. He knew their self-deception. He knew that there was a false belief out there. Our Lord knows that everything that the Father does, that the Spirit does, that is divine, Satan has a counterfeit for. What exactly did he know? What what exactly did he know? Is there anywhere in the Gospels that we can go to that tells us what Jesus knew? Go to Mark chapter 7, and here are going to be Jesus' words. Mark chapter 7, and all this introduces us to the dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus. But Mark chapter 7 We have Jesus' own words, his perspective of humanity, and why John would write this about Jesus knowing and why he would not commit himself to these people. 
Look at Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. He said to them, are you not lacking in understanding also? Now, he's talking to the religious leaders here. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. He's talking physically here. Look at verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. It's not what goes into us that defiles us. He's saying we're already born that way. We're born as infants, as babies coming out of the mother's womb, sinners with a sin nature. We come out defiled from the get-go. You see that baby crowned in the mother coming out, it's defiled. It doesn't take long before we notice that defilement and demanding things, right? Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. From out of the heart of men, Jesus knew the heart of men. He knew what those hearts produced. He knew the sinful condition of the soul, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. They're already there. This is what Jesus knew. This is what he knew. So much so that he was not fooled by this crowd that continued to follow him because of signs. I want another one. Can you do another one? How about some more? You see, why did Jesus perform all these signs? To show that he was the Messiah. But many people, their, their belief fell short. It wasn't true saving belief. They just wanted more and more signs for their own selfish benefit. They never came to the realization that he's the Messiah, which was the purpose of those signs. But who wouldn't want a miracle? Who wouldn't want a healing? Who wouldn't want to see one? Who would not want another and another and another? So you have people following him for selfish reasons. What else could verse 24 and 25 mean? But out of this crowd comes a man at night named Nicodemus. <clears throat> and Jesus was not fooled. You know what Jesus does in 24 and 25? In a roundabout way, gives us a diagnosis of the heart. He diagnoses the heart. He diagnoses the problem. And this problem now necessitates what he's going to teach Nicodemus, and that is one must be born again. The diagnosis necessitates his teaching to Nicodemus that one must be born again, that the problem is so severe, so bad, depravity is so bad that there's no remedy to it except what God does, and that is make one alive unto Christ. It's called rebirth. So what does John do here? He writes verses 23, 24, and 25 of chapter 2 to set the scene for Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. There is a deliberate connection going on here between Jesus' knowledge of the human condition, okay, his knowledge of the human condition and his meeting with Nicodemus. The connection is the condition of the human heart. You can't just go into chapter 3 without understanding that. That it's so depraved, it demands new birth. Right? It demands new birth. And Jesus came to effect this radical change. 
He came to affect it, and it's radical. We treat salvation as if it's, oh, I'm just going to heaven now. No, it's a radical change that takes place. We're talking about the indwelling of God in the soul of a sinful human being and making them alive into Christ. That's radical. But we treat it as, eh, that's nice. No. It's not nice. It's holy. It's profound. It's divine. And that's why I say it's miraculous. So let's stand and let's read these 15 verses of chapter 3. That was the introduction. You like it? <laughs> let's read together John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 this morning. Verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. It's non-negotiable. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound and you hear the sound of it. But no one knows where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony? If I told you earthly things and you do not believe me, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That is himself, Christ himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that, here's the purpose, here's why, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, this is, teaches us so much about not just your power, but the depth of our depravity and the inability of humanity or a human being, a man, a woman, or child to save themselves. It is truly all of grace. It is a wonderful, marvelous, supernatural work of the Spirit of God and the life of a sinner. It's purely your mercy purely your grace. And God, that's why we boast in you and you alone. Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. God, remind us again of, of your majesty. Remind us again of your holiness and your power. And create thankful souls inside of us that will thank you for all, all of eternity each and every day. God, we praise you. You have made us alive unto Christ for the purpose of praising you. Thanking you, loving you, following you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I do have three points this morning. Number one is verses one through three, the necessity of the new birth. The necessity of the new birth. And then verses four through eight, the author of the new birth. 
the author of the new birth, and then finally, point number three, the focus, the focus of the new birth, the necessity, the author, and the focus of the new birth, okay, verses 1 through 50. Let's look at point number one, verses 1 through 3. Notice what Jesus says, and we're just going to pick up there. He says in verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Before we look at what the term means, born again, I want us to talk for a minute about the kingdom of heaven. First, what it means. First thing it means is it means just what it is, the kingdom of heaven. I think it has two meanings to it. Number one, it has a present tense meaning, and it has a future tense meaning. Because the kingdom of heaven in general means this, the rule and reign of God. Write that down. When you see the kingdom of heaven, it is that place, that location where God rules and reigns, and everything is wonderful. Present tense would mean the church. It means right here in us, in the soul of a human being that has been made alive. The second sense of it is still yet future, and because I think the Jews would, also, would primarily understand it this way. When Christ is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom and he's ruling and reigning physically over the world, right? Amen? But before then, he's gathering his church and his church are the people in whom he rules and reigns in their lives, in their hearts. So there is a present and future meaning to the term, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, but in general, just means the rule and the reign of God in our hearts today is really the application. It, it's called the lordship of Christ. Amen? It, it means the lordship of Christ in the believer's life. They welcome his rule. They, they seek to serve, serve him daily. That's what it means. And he literally rules and reigns from within, just like he will literally rule and reign from Jerusalem in the millennium to finally fulfill all those promises in the Old Testament. But notice also what he says. It's absolutely necessary. Unless one is born again, he cannot see. There's a condition here. You must be born again to see this. You must be born again for Christ to rule and reign in your heart. You must be born again to look at the scriptures and also see that there's going to be a millennial reign. Without this new birth, one cannot what? See, without new birth, they're still what? What does this mean? They're blind. They're blind. Born again now. What does it mean? Well, I think you already know this. There's a new birth here. It's something radical that goes on. And it presumes something is what? Dead. There's no rebirth with something that's alive. Spiritually speaking, it presumes spiritual death, right? Or or if if we're not spiritually dead, then this would not make sense whatsoever. But it presumes that. In other words, we're blind to the gospel until made alive. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. We see this clearly here. We're going to see it again also in 2 Corinthians. Ephesians chapter chapter 2, excuse me, verses 1 and 5. Ephesians 2, 1 and 5. Look at verse 1. 
and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's writing to the church and reminding them of their past. You were once spiritually what? Dead in reference to your sins. Look at verse 4. But God, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us what? Alive together with Christ. There's new birth. Same concept, changing the words a little bit, but the exact same concept from death to what? Life. And who's doing that? God. He's the author of it. But also this blindness we can see also in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you'd like to turn there. Verse 4, and I'll just say 3 and 4. Listen to these words. And even if our gospel is veiled, covered, why would the gospel be covered and veiled so people cannot what? See Christ for who he is. So that looks like he's a good man, he's a good prophet, he's a good teacher. But, he's about, but Satan would love for people to think he's just this or that or the other. The one thing he does not want people to see is that he is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. So read this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are what? Perishing. In whose case? Talking about those who are in the process of perishing. The God of this world has what? Blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Why? Why so that, purpose statement, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. See, folks, when we go out into the neighborhood and we, we share Christ, when they come here, there's spiritual warfare going on. It is Satan who's blinded these people's eyes or their minds so that they do not see Christ the way we see him. And what we do is we use the word of God, we use scripture because it's the sword to defeat the blinders that Satan has put on the unbeliever. Amen? And that actually goes on. When we are saying John 3.60 to somebody, when we are referencing or, or quoting a scripture here or there in reference to who Christ is, that is a powerful weapon that's coming from our mouths. It's called the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. So someone who is evangelizing and has not used the word of God is not evangelizing. They're fighting spiritual warfare with peace shooters. Right? They're not going to get anywhere. In other words, we're dead until made alive. We're blind to the gospel until we're made alive. This leaves no doubt. Get this one thing. This leaves no doubt. This, this Jesus talking to Nicodemus about you must be born again leaves no doubt as to the profound depth of our depravity and the power of sin. But more important, the power of God unto salvation. You see, here's the thing. When we treat sin lightly, then we got a light gospel. We've got a shallow gospel. We've got a wimpy gospel. But when we say to God, I see myself the way you see me, I am a wretched, wretched sinner, I can't do anything about it, then all of a sudden the gospel becomes more powerful to me. See, the reason we talk about the sinfulness of humanity is to set people up to embrace Christ, the sovereign of his creation. His majesty that hung on that cross. The one who was rose from the dead. 
the one who gives new life. A lot of people say today you must be born again. They say it, but do they pray it? Do they believe it? Do they really believe what this necessitates? Do they believe that, that this really indicates the profound depth of our own depravity and inability to please God? So simply, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, it's absolutely necessary to be born again. If you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. You will not see the kingdom of God. You will not see Christ for who he is. You will not have him rule and reign in your heart. You will not see heaven. You will not be in heaven. You'll, you'll not be around during the millennium. You'll be in hell. That's it. So here in verse 3, we see the necessity of being born again or new life or new birth. That takes us to the second point this morning, the author of this new birth, the author of it. Who's doing this, by the way, right? Who's doing this? Well, to put it simple and short and plain, it's the Holy Spirit. It's God, the third person of the Trinity. He's the one that makes someone new. I don't do it. You don't do it. Humans don't do it. We're dead. How can we do anything like that when we're spiritually dead? What Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you're a teacher. You're a teacher of the Jews. You're an Old Testament expositor. You're an Old Testament professor in the best seminary in the world of that day, and you don't get it. I love Nicodemus' response in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born, can he? I really don't think Nicodemus meant that. He knew better than that. I think he was so profoundly confused. I, here's what I think is going on. Jesus did an assault on his religion. All religions have just been assaulted. He, being born again absolutely, without question, to an infinite degree, excludes all works. He just said, there's no way you don't enter into the kingdom with your works, Nicodemus, even if they, your works are based upon the Old Testament law. All that you do is in vain. All your works, all your righteous deeds that you have done, they are as filthy rags. And it's the same not just with Judaism. All religions fall under this umbrella of vanity and inability. In other words, to accept the new birth, you must reject all of your righteousness, all of your good works, all of your religion must be repented from if you are to accept the new birth. You must simply admit and say, I've been wrong all my life. I've been wrong. I'm lost. I need for somebody outside of me to do something on my behalf. And Jesus, you're the one. That's why you came. You came to do and to achieve what I could never do because I am a wretched sinner. Now, verse 5, Jesus responds with this analogy of water and then the Spirit. Notice what he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born. Here it is. Here's that of necessity. But this time he says born of water and the Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom 
of God. This time he says water and the spirit. I, I believe the likeliest of this background comes from Ezekiel 36. You want to write that down, 25, 26, and 27. And let me turn there for a moment. What does this water and reference mean? Could it mean, well, I was born physically and then spiritually? I don't think so. I think it's more of a Gentile understanding. I think a Jewish mind would go back to the Old Testament scriptures to one like Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. And let me read this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, rebirth, new birth, and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, one that is moldable, shapeable, one that will shape you further and further into the image of my son, I think we could say. Verse 27, how is he going to do this? Here it is. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Here's how I'm going to cause you to follow my son. Here's how I'm going to cause you to walk in his ways. Here's how I'm going to cause you to fall in love with him. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And that's what it means to be born again. But the imagery of water is the imagery of cleanliness, being cleansed. And and this is also in the New Testament, by the way. It's also in the New Testament. If you'd like to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. Ephesians 5.26 says this, so that he might sanctify her, not just the husband sanctifying his wife, but Christ sanctifying his church. What does that mean, sanctify her? Having cleansed her by washing of water with the what? Word. When the Holy Spirit indwells a person, he begins the beautiful work of cleaning them up. Like we use water when we take a bath or a shower. We get the external dirt off, but the Holy Spirit comes in and gets the soap and water of the Word and cleans up our heart, so to speak. That's a terrible analogy, but you get the point, okay? It's called sanctification. And here's the beautiful thing about God's grace. His cleansing effect is twofold. Number one, we get that initial total cleansing where we're justified before a holy God, right? Remember, remember the, later on in John, in chapter 13, Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. And, and, in, and he's going to get to Peter. And be, oh, don't wash my feet. Oh, God, you're too big. Jesus, you're too big for this. You're, you're too, you're a king, you know. I, Peter, if I don't do it, you're going to remain dirty. I got nothing to do with you. Oh, they wash all of me. Well, Jesus' answer to that is this. I only need to wash your feet. And he uses the word wash in two different ways. One way, the first way is you're already totally clean. But as you're my child, as you're my follower in this world, you're going to get dirty on a daily basis. So on a daily basis, the Spirit lives in you to wash you, to cleanse you. How does that manifest itself in everyday average life at home with our kids, with our spouses? I'm sorry. That was sin. Will you forgive me my words? That's that everyday cleansing effect. We do it knowing that we've been totally cleansed justified before a holy God. But on a daily basis, this is the Christian walk. This is the Christian experience, the Christian life that, that, that we know we live in a fallen world and I live in this body that's definitely fallen. The older I get, the more fallen it becomes, so to speak. You didn't get, you didn't get that, did you? Okay. It just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't cooperate. But, and I have this flesh that hangs on. 
And I'm in a world that appeals to that flesh all over the place, right? What I mean, appeal to it, it puts things in my eyes or gives things in my ears that kind of come. Yeah, it's not going to be all that bad. Take a look. Take a listen. You can go there. Yeah. To tempt us to what? To sin. What, why does the, Satan use the world to tempt Christians to sin? Because it doesn't want the world to see Jesus in his body called the church, which is you and me. So I think you get what's going on here. So when we look at the Spirit, what Jesus says in verse 5, born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Water is in reference to cleansing. We see this again in Titus, by the way. Chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, in, in reference to righteousness, quote, but according to his mercy here, by the washing, there it is, of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You ever hear the doctrine of regeneration? That's what this is. That's what it means to be born again. It has a washing effect, a cleansing effect. So you see that's what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. And that's why in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be, that it's absolutely necessary to be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you're never going to see it unless God does that work in your life, makes you alive unto himself. It's the teaching of regeneration. It's what sinners need to see to understand the kingdom of heaven. It's a gift of God's grace. It is not earned. It's not something that sinner does. It is the work of God, making a sinner alive unto himself. In fact, it precedes faith. The reason why we believe is because we've been born again. That's the only thing that makes sense here. You don't believe and then God goes, oh, well, then I'll make you alive now. No, no, no. You're made alive in the evidence that you're born again in the Spirit, is you now profess and you follow Christ. You see, what what born again does, it leaves no boasting whatsoever on the half of the sinner except in Christ alone. In the work of God alone. When we say we have nothing to boast of, that absolutely means nothing. I can't take credit for anything, not even my faith. Yeah, I, I, I did something. I acted. I, I made a profession. I did. But it's because God made me alive. He gave me a new heart. I'm a new creature because I'm born again. We see this earlier on in chapter 1 of John. Look at verses 12 and 13. Let's go back to chapter 1. When we were here, I fast-forwarded to chapter 3. Now that we're in chapter 3, I'm going back a little bit. Listen to this. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's the tense. The verb is active. They're actively believing. It's something they're doing. It's coming from their will. We actively in our will believe. Right? That's exactly what's going on here. But how does my will get to that point to where it's willing to believe? God made you alive. God gave you that willing spirit. Look at verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, 
nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And you want to know something? <clears throat> when the verb, the verb in 12, to receive, is active, which means it's something that I do, in verse 13 where it says, who were born, that's passive. That means something happens to the sinner first before he actively believes. The grammar dispels this out beautifully. Just beautifully. And now it's reinforced in chapter 3 in Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. So let's go on. Let's go back to chapter 3. Again, it's nothing that the sinner does. He responds. He responds being a new creature. He responds because he has new life now, and his will responds with an active belief, an active love, actually. And I love Jesus, and I believe, and I want to follow him. And that's a gift of that, those desires right there. Those desires to want to do that is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Look at verse 8. It's a secret work of God. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit's out there doing this work. You know, we don't see him doing it, but we see the evidences of him doing it. And that first evidence is called repentance and faith, making a profession. And then the evidence slowly begins to flow from there. The desire to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. The desire to get into his word. Falling in love with him. Starting more and more to say no to flesh. And distinguishing between the activities of my flesh and what God wants me to do. Because he's given me a hunger and thirst for his word. Those are evidences, all evidences. And there's more of them that one is born again. That one has new life. Isn't that beautiful? The evidence of faith is following Jesus Christ as Lord. And the be, the be born again indicates that one must be granted a brand new nature. In other words, it's like what John says. You know why we first, where we love God? Because he first loved us. God is the initiator in salvation. He initiates everything. Amen? He's the initiator. We trust Christ because he first made me alive. I love God because he first opened my eyes up to his love. And I put that together with how God described me before I came to Christ and I was spiritually dead. God, if there's going to be a revival in our land, it has to start with this is all a work of God. We are totally 110% dependent upon him. The first great awakening happened because it was a sovereign move of God where people actually just broke down in their seats as the word of God was being preached. And there were no, there were, there was no special music then. There was no smoke behind Jonathan Edwards billowing up as he was preaching or when a choir was there. There was no special effects. There was no changing the environment to try to woo people. It was a simple preaching of God's word, a movement of a sovereign God that changed in the 1700s, a large part of this nation. But now what do we do? We think God needs help. And so we create an environment. We create a church service which appeals to people. Because, God, you need help. After all, you made us wise. And God said, preach my word. 
worship me, live obediently, trust me, trust me, trust in my power, trust in my ability, trust in my word. Amen? That's where revival begins. And actually revival begins in a church. And then it overflows beyond the church out into a lost world because the people will waken up and see that this Jesus is real all because it's the movement of God. You you do not create revival. Revival is not something that man does. We, We don't say, hey, neighborhood, we're going to have a revival next week that presumes upon God, number one. We pray, we want, we look, we live for Christ. We're faithful to the word. And we're praying, God, when you come, when you show yourself mighty in the souls of lost sinners, we will be ready. In fact, God, start with us, your children. Start with us, your children. Number three, we talked about the necessity of being born again, one through three. We talked about the author of the new birth being the Holy Spirit, four through eight, and now the focus of the new birth, nine through 15. I love this because here's what Jesus does. After 10, 11, and 12, verses 10, 11, and 12, talking to Nicodemus and kind of, again, embarrassing him, okay, he draws the attention to himself. So Jesus does in the latter part of this conversation. So here's the third point. The focus of the new birth is Jesus Christ. The focus is Jesus Christ. Later on in chapter 16 of John, Jesus is going to be in the upper room teaching his disciples, and he's going to say, I'm going to give you the Spirit, and he will what? Glorify me. The focus of new birth. So the evidence, the primary evidence that one is born again, that one is alive, excuse me, in Christ, is that they love Christ, and with their life, and with their mouth, with their hands, feet, they desire to point to Christ. They live for him. That is the primary evidence of the new birth. I love verse 9 because Nicodemus follows with the last question, how can these things be? And again, Jesus responds in verse 10, you're a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? In other words, you should understand these things because these things are in the Old Testament. I am the Lamb of God is is in the Old Testament. Read Isaiah 53 for one example. Being born again is in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Psalm 51. Create in me, O God, a clean heart. Those are just three examples of how this teaching of being born again and needing new life is embedded in the Old Testament. And a teacher like Nicodemus should have understood this. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Wow. In other words, got it. Oh, look around. There was a bug flying around here. Like, Anyway, okay. Notice what he means here is earthly things. Look around you, Nicodemus. Look around Israel. Look at where your nation is today. Look around. Observe. If you look at the sinfulness of humanity, you look at your own sinful history of Israel, and the last 400 years, by the way, God had been silent, you would know that something profound and drastic would have to happen. 
you would begin to understand that one must be born again. Just naturally, physically, look around you. Look at your country. Look at your nation. Look at your fellow man. Look at where you're at. Folks, today, church, look around us. Watch the news. Won't take long. Look around you. Be observant. The physical way that our nation is, our communities, our authorities, look around. There's the evidence of how depraved humanity is. There's the evidence that one, therefore, must be what? Born again to see the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't understand by looking around you, observing physical evidence, then you're certainly not going to understand if I give you spiritual teaching. You see that? The problem is your unbelief. The problem is your unbelief. And the unbelief is because of your sin. Sin, nature, keeps you unbelieving. So sin does. It's the essence of sin is unbelief, right? Okay? The essence of sin is selfishness. I'm self-centered. I, 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 and therefore, I don't believe. I can do it myself. I can pull up my own bootstraps. I, I can make God happy. I could do that on my own. No. No. God says you're unable. Your your righteousness is filthy rags. Turn to my son. Don't be fooled. Don't be duped. Don't be like those in chapter 2, 23 who believed because they were just observing signs and just wanted more and more and more. That's not true saving faith. True saving faith is coming to the last sign that will be in the end of the gospel of John. It's called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you're going to say, that's it. It's nailed. He is the son of God. I need no more proof. I need no more signs. Jesus, you are my Lord. I'm following you. You are my redeemer. And then we, wow, that is awesome. I'm going to die and not go to hell. I got eternal life. I'm going to be with Jesus forever. Oh, God, how can this be? God says, I made you alive unto me. The Spirit made you alive. You're born again. Oh, God, I'm going to live the rest of my life boasting in you. That means I'm going to tell others about Jesus. Right? If someone asks what the hope is in me, it's going to be Jesus. How do you get through these trials? It's Jesus. And because, listen, listen, I'm not living for this world. Jesus tells me there's a world to come. It's heaven. He's preparing me for it. He says, I got you there. You know how I know he can deliver on that promise? He rose from the dead, the ultimate sign, once again. Now, how do I know that? Because I'm intelligent and I'm smart? No. Because Jesus says, the Spirit made you alive. You were dead, Jim. But by my grace, I made you alive. I awakened you. I gave you a new heart, a new capacity, a new disposition. And it's changed your life forever and ever and ever. And that change began the moment that he converted me. So after he says, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's what he does. 
<laughs> He'll tell them a heavenly thing in verse 13, 14, and 15. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Here is the descended Son of Man who had not ascended yet saying this. You get it? Here he is, the Son of God, the incarnation. He's saying this, and he had descended, which means where did he come from? Heaven. Came to earth. And he's saying, here's who God is. Here's your creator. I know my heavenly Father. He knows me. I'm one with him. And this is why they killed him, right? And what happened between his descension and ascension? The cross. The cross. And that's where John is going here. And I love verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, why did he lift up the serpent? So those who would look at the serpent would not what? Perish, would not physically die. So too, those who look to the cross of Christ, the risen Savior, they look to his cross and look to his resurrection, they too shall live forever. And that's what he's getting at here. And that's why you have verse 15. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Believe what? In the cross of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ. That those, that that, the resurrection is the ultimate sign. And once you see that, you hunger and thirst for no more. But what were they doing back at the end of chapter 2? They kept hungering and thirsting for more signs because what was that indication of we learned last week? They really didn't yet believe. So, those who look to Christ lifted up on the cross will live eternity. This looking to Christ, this dependence upon Christ, this seeing Christ as the Son of Man, seeing Christ as one's Lord and Savior is the evidence that one is what? Born again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, that's why we proclaim the gospel. Because we know your spirit like the wind is out there. And, it's, and, and you, you bring this to the forefront. You make this alive through the preaching, the sharing, the telling of the gospel. And, and we're the means by which you, you, you bring this, the spirit's work that he's doing behind the scenes, you bring them to the forefront. And it's evidenced to us by people who turn to Christ and they, they, they let go of all their goodness and all their own good works. They, they no longer depend on any of that whatsoever. And they, they, they cling to Christ and his righteousness. They cling to his cross. They desire to, they repent of their sins and desire to follow. And every time they stumble, every time they make mistakes or they fail or they sin, they again look to the cross. They preach the gospel to themselves. They remind themselves of their Redeemer. They, as the Jews would look to the serpent, we look to Christ. And by your grace, God, all you tell us to do is to confess our sins and to get back up, to dust ourselves off, to get back into fellowship with you, with the body, to get into your word, to begin moving forward again. It's, it's like a cycle, God. And sometimes the cycle is often every day. But Lord God, we pray that cycle would, be get le- would become less intense. And that you would give us victories in those cycles, so to speak. And that the Lordship of Christ would come to the forefront. God, produce further and more profound evidence in our lives that we are born again. So that when we share Christ, people are seeing and not just hearing about him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.